Stay seated, but just put your hand on your neighbor's shoulder, and I just want you to pray. Revelation hits hard when you're sitting. Hang up. <laughs> just pray for revelation just to be released. Revelation of the goodness of God. Woo, come on. Lord, more. Have no mercy on these people, Lord. Give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. <laughs> more than you can handle in the Lord. The windows of heaven open. More than you can contain. That's awesome. Shush. That's good. Wow. Guys having a good night? We just got home from Germany this week. Which, uh, I've been to Germany six times and never been out of the airport, so. I count it, I count it though. Every, 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 I count every country I've been in, and so lots of countries I've only seen the airport. But that's the same, isn't it? Cultural. Culture of the airport. Kathy says that's cheating. So, but yeah, we had a great time. And how many of you, how many of you have a German origin? Seriously? Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, you have a beautiful country. You know, they have countries like, I mean, they're, they have countries. They have buildings, <laughs> buildings in Germany, like a thousand years old. Like, they have buildings that took 300 years to build the building. Seriously, when our ancestors were in teepees, they were building like these incredible forts. It's awesome. We went in a, um, we went in a church that they built over 200 years. I mean, took them 200 years. Every king built on, every pope built on. It was just amazing. You know, part of that is the, your worldview, right? I mean, you build wood houses when you don't think you're going to be here long. <laughs> just the thought. Anyway, <laughs> I know we're building out of metal now. It's awesome. This building's beautiful. It's just like the cathedrals of Spain. And we went right to the very spot where Martin Luther, where the protests began with Martin Luther. That was, that was awesome. I, someone told me, actually, um, yeah, someone wrote me a letter, an historian said that, pro, that the word pro, Protestant came from the word Protestament originally. But that's actually not true. Actually, I was at the very spot where they were called protesters. And so we are since. We are protesters. Anyway, well, that was just a thought. Not necessarily a good one. Um, this, is, uh, this is a book that Jason and I wrote together. Father and Son Project. Um, and it's called The Supernatural Power of Forgiveness. And how many of you have ever had to forgive somebody? Wow, you sinners. How many of you ever needed to be forgiven? Yeah. And so um, this, is, uh, this is all about how to, how to overcome pain. And, you know, whether you're the victim and somebody's really um, uh, harm, hurt you and, and uh, wounded you in some deep way, maybe betrayal, maybe you've been through a divorce, maybe you've just, maybe, you know, so many, there's so many different ways that someone gets underneath our armor and hurts us deeply. And so maybe you've been the victim maybe of that and 
you're like, you know what, every time I see that person, I've said 300 times, I forgive them in my heart, and yet I can hardly stand to be in the same room with them. And so this gives you some tools, like how do I get out of that mode? And the second thing is, uh, the book is also about people, maybe maybe you're the one, maybe you're the victimizer. Maybe you're the person who's done something terrible. Maybe you've destroyed your family or you've done something horrible. I remember uh, a friend of mine years and years ago when he was about 22 years old, he got drunk, his girlfriend was in the car and, um, and they got in a car accident and she died in the car accident. And this, that's, this isn't a story that's in the book, but it's just a powerful story and he didn't realize it, but this man started coming to the prison. He got, I forget how many years in prison, um, and this man started coming to the prison and reaching out to him as a chaplain, kind of like a chaplain. And uh, the day he got out of prison, the man came and picked him up, took him to his house, and he realized it was the father of the daughter that had died in the car accident. And this is a powerful story. So sometimes we're, we're, you know, we're needing to forgive. And then sometimes we've made serious, I don't want to say just mistakes, because a mistake means you didn't really mean it. But we, sometimes we've seriously sinned against someone, and we're like, we need, we need, to, we need to be forgiven. And how many understand, no matter what the circumstances, forgiveness is the answer. And so this is not just a book about, about, it's not just stories, it's actually steps. If any of you have ever been really offended, you know that sometimes like just saying, I'm sorry, or, or just saying, I forgive you, doesn't really seem to solve the issue at times. And so that's what this book's about. I think it's a really good book. One of the best books I've ever read. Um, who would like this book? Awesome. We're going to have it for sale. We're going to... What's that? Yeah, we're going to have a book signing after the service tonight. Jason and I will be there. Let's see. Who should we give this book to? We already did birthdays. How about anniversary? Anybody have anniversary? I'm, I mean today. Like today is your anniversary? It would be so awesome if you came to church to hear me preach on your anniversary. How about honeymoon? That would even be better if today's your honeymoon day. <laughs> if you're here, you need, seri- like, you, need, you need some of my other books if you're here. <laughs> here, why don't you just give these to somebody. And Kathy's going to hear from the Lord. And... <laughs> oh. She gave them to people who didn't ask for them. Wow, that's more than you ask or think. Anyway, that didn't work either. But let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would open up um, our eyes to see what it is that you're doing in our day, in our time. And Father, that you would help us to sense um, what the Spirit is actually saying to us as both a church, a people, and, and as a country. In Jesus' name, amen. Last, um, two weeks ago, I started a series. Actually, it's a series I've actually taught before. It's called Living in Graceland. I don't know how many of you were here for that. How many of you heard, uh, maybe I should tell you a little bit about it, and then you maybe remember. You should actually be remembering, memorizing all of my messages. Uh, um, but I talked about the fact that we're, in, um, we're actually in this epic season called the last days, and there's a difference between the last days and the last day. How many of you were in that message? Okay, I don't know where the rest of you were, 
but I'm glad the little flock came back tonight. Anyway, we were, we're talking about the fact that when Jesus said in um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your, uh, love your neighbor. I mean, love everyone. You should just love everybody. All you need is love. <laughs> Jesus said, love your enemies and you'll be like your father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and uh, makes the sun rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so and Jesus makes this distinction that in the old covenant, God withheld rain. Remember, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. Where did they hear that? They heard that. This is all review, but they heard that in the old covenant. Remember, God said, God sent Joshua into the promised land and told him, kill everybody. Do you remember this? And in fact, the king that gave mercy to another king, King Saul, lost his kingship because he, because he extended mercy to a king that God did not extend mercy to. And so in the old covenant, God absolutely did not, in fact, God did not have mercy on people who were sinners. As a matter of fact, that's the message of the cross. The reason why we need Jesus is because sin requires judgment to release justice. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled justice because God judged Jesus on the cross so he could release mercy. And so Jesus makes this incredible statement of uh, epic transition when he says you've heard it said love your neighbor but hate your enemy but i say to you um, uh, love your enemies pray for those who persecute you you'll be like your father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous so in the old testament elijah elijah was able to withhold the rain for three and a half years do you remember that that the famine got so severe that people actually ate some of their own children which is kind of weird there's some, how many of you know that the, the Old Testament is kind of rated R-ish? It's a rated R-ish kind of for violence. <laughs> and, uh, and some of it for sexual content, actually, in some places, is really weird. But anyway, um, so the Old Testament, how did Elijah get permission to withhold the rain? Because God said in, in the, in the uh, law of Moses, if you serve me, and you love me, and you keep my commandments, and you keep my ordinances, all these blessings will follow, and there's pages of blessings. He said, but if you don't serve me, if you serve other gods, or if you sin against me, you walk away from me, here are the curses, and one of the curses was, I will withhold the rain. Do you remember that? Now, Jesus said, you've heard it said, that uh, um, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and you'll be like your Father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous, and here's the key word, and unrighteous. In other words, there's an epic transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. What is the transition? Now God reigns on righteous people and unrighteous people. That was a really good point, and for those of you that weren't here last time, that was bad response. So the point is, is that that is a huge epic transition that God actually does nice things for people who don't deserve it. And he can do that because, when, because Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. So Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. You were hidden in Christ and when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you and as you. So no longer did you, do, do you 
Are you judged by your works, but you're judged by his works? That's why you're hidden in Christ. It's the greatest disappearing act in all of history. So that act of, um, of the cross created what the Bible calls a new covenant. A covenant is an agreement. So in the old covenant, you were judged by your works. In the new covenant, you're judged by his works. In the old covenant, you got into heaven by doing everything right. Now, how many of you realize nobody ever did? Which is the point of the old covenant, you need a savior. But the old covenant, God says, okay, you want to get to heaven through your works? Here, keep all these rules. And there was literally hundreds of pages of them. And Isaiah cries out, 500 years before Christ, there's none righteous, not even one. So nobody got in that way. Are you with me? And so the, that's and that, actually that's the point of the of the of the old covenant is to point to the fact that listen this is my agreement God says if you want to get to heaven you want to have a relationship with me and you you don't want to know me let's start over you want to get to heaven and you want to be righteous and you don't want to have a relationship with me but you want to do it through your performance here's the rules nobody could do it through their own through their own performance no one could do it through the rules. So God says, listen, that's the point. You need a relationship with me, and now I'll make a new covenant. Now we live in a new agreement. Are you with me? We have a new agreement. And how many understand that a covenant is made until death? In other words, when I make an agreement with you, when God made an agreement with Abraham, they, they took a lamb, they cut it in half, and they walked through this lamb, and the blood of this lamb, and said, this is what it said, God, God was saying to Abraham, I make this covenant with you unto death. In other words, God's saying, Abraham, I will keep this covenant unto death. And Abraham was saying to God, God, I will keep this covenant unto death. In other words, you can kill me if I don't keep this agreement. This covenant is unto death. Now, guess what happens when God wants to change a covenant? Well, the covenant's unto death, so what does God have to do? Die. So Jesus dies on the cross so he can change the covenant because the covenant is on to death. Are you following me? The reason why we take communion. Now, there are lots of dimensions to taking communion, but Jesus actually said, do this in remembrance of me. The reason why we actually take communion, I mean, the primary reason, and I do realize that there, there are lots of different reasons, and we bring them out every time we do communion. We talk about the blood and for healing and for relationship and common union and all of that. But the core reason why we, we actually take communion is to remember what side of the cross we live on. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What's he saying? Remember that you're living on this side of this covenant. That you're living in the new covenant, not in the old covenant. Because in the old covenant, you lived by your performance. In the new covenant, you live by mine. Are you following me? Okay, and, and this, is all, this is all just repeat, but how many of you understand that there's a difference between mercy and grace? We just came back from Germany, and mercy and grace has the same word. Mercy and grace are the same word in Germany. So I was trying to share about the, the concept of mercy and the concept of grace. And the interpreter looked at me and we, he stopped and he whispered. He said, it's the same word in German. I'm having a really difficult time translating this. And it's too bad because mercy and grace are not the same thing. Mercy means you didn't get what you deserved. Grace means that you got what you didn't deserve. 
So, and I gave this example, I've actually heard it uh, years ago from somebody else. But if you're going along 100 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone, and a, and a police officer pulls you over and he doesn't give you a ticket, that's mercy. You didn't get what you deserve. Are you following me? So, on one hand, we received mercy. But how many understood that we got saved by faith through grace? Okay, so, if you're going along 100 miles an hour and a police officer pulls you over in a 50 mile an hour zone... And instead of giving you a ticket, he gives you a thousand dollar bill for speeding. That's grace. Grace means you didn't, not only did you not get what you deserved, but you got what you didn't deserve. And if you think that that example is extravagant, think what it's like when God gave you heaven and seated you in heavenly places and gave you eternal life and put you in charge of the universes when you didn't deserve it. When you deserve judgment and he gave you grace. Uh, we, we have to remember, man, this is, uh, this is exciting. But here's the problem. A lot of people live in the new covenant with old covenant mindset. And they accuse people who are living in the new covenant with a new covenant mindset of Greasy grace. This is not greasy grace, folks. This cost God his life. So the fact that we take advantage of what Jesus did on the cross is actually honoring to God. When I do when I sin and I ask for forgiveness, and then let's say I stay depressed for a few days, or you know, I let people treat me bad for several days or weeks or months or I create a lifestyle of it just to show God I'm really sorry. Like, I don't want to be happy right away because then God will think I'm not serious about my sin. Well, if you're not serious about your sin, we'll all know because you'll repeat it. If you didn't really repent, we'll know because you won't change the way you're thinking and you'll repeat the behavior. So your depression doesn't tell us how deeply you've repented. Your change of attitude does. Are you following me? But when I allow myself to be punished, or in other words, when I don't realize that, when I lose fact, when I lose sight of the fact that I have permission to live happily ever after, when I repented, when I lose sight of that fact, I tell Jesus what you did on the cross isn't good enough for me. It's an insult to the cross. Are you with me? If, if, you, if you got divorced and you did something horrible to cause it, and obviously there's no such thing as a divorce that only one person's at fault. I understand that. But let's just pretend you're 100% at fault and you destroy that marriage, run off with someone else, do something crazy... And, and later on, you ask for forgiveness and you're, you're, you're remarried. Guess what? You have permission to have a great marriage. Well, no, no. They sin. Well, yes, they sin. But the idea is that Jesus forgave them and restored the standard in their life. The, you, you know, I have this, um, and by the way, this isn't permission granted to get divorced. This is permission granted that 
those of you that are remarried, it's time for you to release yourself from the destructive nature of trying to create your own redemption. Whenever I punish myself or I punish or I say to myself, well, you know what? I can't have a great marriage now because I failed. Yeah, the truth is you failed. That's the truth. But the truth is he took your failure on the cross. Well, you don't understand. I I, I ruined my marriage and I did it on purpose and I knew it was wrong. That's why it's called sin, actually. Because you did it on purpose. If you didn't do it on purpose, it's called a mistake. Jesus didn't die for mistakes. He died for your on purpose. That's why James says, to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. In fact, I was just reading in John this week, just in my devotional time, and the Pharisees, uh, Jesus is talking about blind people, the blind leading the blind. The Pharisees said, well, are you talking about us? Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus says to the Pharisees, no, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But because you say I see, you sin because you know what you're doing is wrong. You can't sin by accident. So Jesus died for your on purpose. The stuff you did wrong on purpose. Are you following me? And when he did that, when he died for you, and you repent, and repent doesn't mean I'm sorry, because how many of you know a lot of people are sorry because you got caught? In fact, when we were kids, we probably all were sorry at some point that we got caught. Oh, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm not thinking I'm never going to do that again. I'm thinking I'm going to do it differently so I don't get caught. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) And that's not called repentance. Right? That's called a better plot. <laughs> repentance means I truly, I, truly, I truly think differently about that. And I understand, let's say that I have an abortion. Okay, of course, God forgives me when I ask for forgiveness. Now, what does it mean to repent? It means I think differently about what I'm carrying the next time I get pregnant. I think differently about... That I think differently about this subject than I did before. It doesn't just mean my actions. It means I think differently about that. Are you with me? And actually, it means I think like God about this. So once I repent, I can expect God to not just forgive me, but to give me grace. Here's $1,000. In fact, it says where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. In other words... The more sin in your life, the more likely you are to become rich with grace. And Paul said, I'm an example of that. I know, I know. It's so confusing that the next line is, shall we sin so grace will abound? That's the next line. Romans 6, 1. Shall we sin so grace will abound? Because when you get done listening to Paul's deal about grace, you're like, dude, we should do bad stuff so we can get some money. Because that's where, that's, that's where you're going. Like, that's how it feels. Like If you really understand grace, it's almost like you want to sin so, so you can get more grace. And then Paul goes, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, shall we sin so grace shall abound? And then he goes, no, how can dead people sin? And then he goes on to tell us that we've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, and then he begins to tell us that we have this new nature when we receive Jesus Christ and we're baptized into Christ, that we don't sin because it's not our nature. But, but leading up to that, for five chapters in the book of Romans, he talks so much about grace that when he gets to the end of the fifth chapter, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And you're like, 
Man, if I really want to get everything God has for me, I'd go do something wrong. And he goes, no, you, listen, you're misunderstanding me. He, you know, he's answering his que- you know, he's answering his own question. He's thinking, okay, by now they're probably thinking, wow, bad people actually have it better than good people. So maybe we should be bad. And then he answers the question that he knows is arising from his teaching. And he says, listen, you don't sin because it's not your nature to sin anymore. Because you have a new nature. Are you following me? But the point is this, is that we received mercy and grace in Christ. And not only that, but here's, really, here's an important part. Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, I quote it, it says that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the cross, this is a question that someone just emailed me. Did the cross just change heaven's perspective of Christians people who receive Christ, or did it change heaven's perspective of earth? And I would propose to you that God so loved the world, it doesn't say God so loved Christians, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but to have every last life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn or judge the world, depending on your translation, judge the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. So the point is, is that the cross didn't just change God's perspective towards born-again people, that the cross gave God, if you will, permission to release mercy because he dealt with judgment, which, let me say it differently, God had to create justice, otherwise he's a crooked judge. You know, on Fox News, anybody ever watch Fox News every once in a while, Bill O'Reilly will have this judge who let off the, you know, the person who molested five children and then you know he gets caught again and you know Bill O'Reilly's got this segment that he does about the judge who's kind of a crooked judge well God how many of you understand that if God just lets people off without creating justice he's like those he's like a crooked judge a judge on the take he's got shifting shadows is the way that Jude puts it but God doesn't have any shifting shadows God doesn't let you free he doesn't let he doesn't extend mercy until he until he takes care of justice. So Jesus creates justice by God judging sin on the cross. Jesus became sin, the Bible says. God judges sin on the cross. Now he can release mercy without being crooked. On this side of the cross, they couldn't do that. If God released people from judgment on this side of the cross, how many understand he'd be a crooked judge? But on this side of the cross... Jesus paid for sin, so now God has full permission to release mercy and still be justed. Are you following me? So, the, the, what I'm saying is this. Here's the point, this point. The cross didn't just change God's perspective on Christians. It allowed God's perspective on humanity to be different because Jesus didn't die for Christians, he died for the world. That's why he makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How many of you understand that if we were all Christians in this room, and I hope that we're not, I hope there's people here that don't know the Lord, I hope that you're here as seekers, you understand what I'm saying, but if we were all Christians in this room, how many of you understand we would all be righteous? You don't know that? Remember the parable of the, uh, the one lamb who 
wandered off. And it says that Jesus, it says the shepherd went out after the one. And it says that they rejoiced, that he rejoiced more over the one soul who needed to be saved than all of the righteous souls who needed no repentance. How many of you know that you're supposed to be the righteous souls who need no repentance? So if, if we're, in other words, what I'm getting at is this. If we were all Christians in this room, then we, realize, we would realize that it doesn't just rain on us because we're righteous. It rains on people who don't deserve it. That's the point. God makes the sun rise on people who don't deserve it. You can't stand outside today on this side of the cross and stop the rain because people sin. You can't cause an earthquake because people sin. Mm, this is getting deep. Why not? Because the cross. When you say, um, hey, you know what? That, those people, that country, that city, that nation deserves to be punished. Oh, that's true. Absolutely. But so do you. It's a really weird perspective. It reminds me of a little bit of a small town, kind of, if you've grown up in a small town. Like we, we, we you know, my kids grew up in Weaverville. Now just think of it, Weaverville. Okay? It does, I mean, you can't even hide the fact that you, you know, I mean, the Deliverance movie was, could have been made there. Remember the old Deliverance movie? And, you know, what, and, and we have all these, uh, you know, our board of supervisors, once you got in, like we were from San Jose, once you got in, you didn't want anybody else to get in. It's like, you know what, it's, it's you and me and us three, that's it. And we, we have these like closed borders once you got in. And we always have these discussions at the Board of Supervisors. It's like, well, you know, this, this business wants to come in. It's like, oh, no, we don't want them in. We're in. We're, we're in. Everybody else has to stay out. And somehow the church has developed this mentality. Like once we got in by grace, we want everybody else to get in through their works. It feels really weird. You know, as a pastor and our staff, you know, all of the, the work that we do, oftentimes we're dealing with Christians who are still sinning, which how many know is incongruent with our nature. So I struggle with Christians who still sin. I struggle when I sin. So let me just be clear. As I know, I have no excuse. That's why Hebrews, I'm sorry, that's why 1 John 1 says, in fact, 1 John 2 verse 1 says, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In other words, if, not when, if. If you sin, you need an attorney. Why? Because Jesus did all of this so that she changed your nature. He gave you the Holy Spirit. He gave you go. He gave you all these advantages so you wouldn't sin. So if you do, you need an attorney. Are you following me? So I struggle with Christian sin. I don't struggle with the fact that sinners sin. And what's funny to me is Jesus liked to hang out with sinners, but struggled with religious people who doubted everything right, but had a bad heart. Did you notice that when Jesus got mad and judged people, it was always the religious people? 
wasn't calling down fire on the people who were sinners. He was always calling down fire on people who, who went to church. <laughs> Not our church. He likes Bethel. <laughs> he likes your church too. You understand what I'm saying. I'm partly joking here, but I'm saying that Jesus struggled more with religious people who, who acted righteous on the outside. Did, in other words, they, their actions were righteous, but their heart wasn't. He, he had an easier time with people that acted wicked, that knew their need, <laughs> than people who act righteous and yet still, and still struggle. They, in other words, there, you know, the word hypocrite actually means, like we would call Mel Gibson a hypocrite if, if you understand the word. Like the word means to be an actor. It, it wasn't actually originally a negative. It means to be an actor. You're acting righteous, but you're not. And Jesus struggled with people who are not being real. Okay. Um... I want to just talk to you. This is part two, actually. Um, I'm sorry. I probably, I probably just need to do a couple more minutes on this. There, there is, um, there is two epic seasons that some of us have put together. We live in the last days. Acts two seventeen. This is all repeat. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on what? All. All would be all flesh. Okay? On the last, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And you know the verse. And it says, uh, even upon your bond servants. And, it, and then it calls, uh, and then it says, your, the sun will be turned dark, the moon will turn blood until the great and, ter- um, great and glorious day of the Lord. And the next verse says, and anyone who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how many understand that when Jesus died on the cross, the sun turned dark, literally turned dark, and the moon turned to blood? Jesus is the reflection of the Father, and he said, I can't do any works unless the Father works through me. So the Father is the sun, and Jesus is the moon. He's the the, the exact representation of the Son, of the Father. So when Jesus died on the cross, the sun turned dark, and the moon turned to blood. And what did it initiate? The great and glorious days of the Lord. So you live in great and glorious. Just so you understand, you live in great and glorious, but there's coming what Malachi prophesied, Malachi chapter 4, great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's always mentioned as a day. This is all repeat, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you just the uh, references, okay? Acts, if you want to write it down, Acts 17.30 says there's, there's a day fixed in which God will judge men. Um, Second uh, uh, Peter three seven uh, calls it a day of judgment. Uh, Jude six calls it the judgment of the great day. First John four seventeen the day of judgment. First Corinthians four four calls it a day of a uh, day when God will pass judgment. That's verse five, and it's nine times in the New Testament alone that there is a day in which God will judge men. Okay, why is that important? Because you live in this season, like the sons of Issachar. You have to understand the times, and understood what they understood the times. They understood what Israel should do in the times. You don't live in great and terrible. You don't live in the great and terrible day of the Lord. You don't live in the day of judgment. You live in the day, in the great and glorious. 
you live in the last days, but there's coming a judgment day. Are you with me? Listen, God extending His mercy and grace to the world will not last forever. And I think maybe that's pretty important to mention. Like there is such thing as a hell. We don't preach about hell very much here. Jesus did. There is a hell and there is a place to go that you go when you turn away. God never sends anyone to hell. You choose hell. God chose heaven. In fact, actually hell was made for demons, not for people. In fact, your name has to be blotted out of the book of life because when God, when God created each one of you, He wrote your name in the book of life so you have to work to get out of it. Are you with me? So you actually, you actually were born for redemption. God, God created you for heaven. It was never God's choice. You have to make a choice to go to hell. It's not God's choice. Well, God wouldn't send people to hell. No, He doesn't send anyone to hell. You do. You make that choice. So, but, and, and that's called a day. And uh, um, I don't know a lot about the book of Revelation, to be totally frank. But it's called the Great White Throne Judgment Day. And, and just to be clear, I know you've heard me say this many times. You won't be the judge. God will. God will be the judge. Are you, this is pretty huge, actually. To understand that, there, that we live in these days, and I call it Graceland. Elvis is dead, but Jesus is alive. So we live in the last days. Now, we don't know if that's going to extend till tonight, or if it's going to be 10,000 more years, or 20,000. And I know there's lots of people that have dates, and that's awesome, and they keep revising their books. And At some point, you think you'd get it, you know, but... We don't know if that's next week, or if it's 10,000 years, or if it's 20,000 years. Because time, when, when you live in a timeless zone, things don't seem like they pass very quickly, or they do. Because God doesn't live in time. God lives out of time. So when, God, when Jesus said, I'll be right back, here we are. <laughs> and if, if you, if you want to understand, like if you read Peter... And, and Paul, like in Thessalonians and in Peter, they, the apostles wrote as if, hey, he's probably going to come back before you die. Like, be ready, because he's probably going to come back. So their perspective of the return of Christ in time was like, this could happen any second. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still going, it's happening any second. It's like, it's, it's God's perspective of seconds. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. God lives in a timeless zone, and if God was to return right now, how many of you understand that if you call for the return of Christ right now, you destined about 4 billion people to hell? So, let's not be selfish, let's be merciful. There's more people alive on the planet today than was alive on since the beginning of history. Do you know that? If you took all the people from the beginning of history till till a hundred years ago and added them up, it wouldn't add up to 6.7 billion people that are on the planet today. So there's more people alive today than any time in all of history put together. What's that mean? Greatest opportunity 
in the world to be alive. Okay, so um, so you live in the last days, and the goal of the last days is that you would give mercy to people who don't deserve it. And we talked about that. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have." Passed away and all things have become new. The next verse says, And God was in Christ. And what was he doing? Reconciling the world to himself. What's the next part of the verse? Not counting their trespasses against them. And what's the next verse? And you've been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. As if God was begging through us to be reconciled to God. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Not counting your trasp- their trespasses against them. What's our job? Reconciliation. What's the job of reconciliation? Not counting their trespasses against them. What did Jesus say when he died on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What, is, what, you know, what do we do when they sin? We're like, don't forgive them. They deserve to be judged. It is a difference in attitude. I don't know if you noticed that. They're nailing Jesus to a cross. He's hanging there, bleeding from every part of his body. And he's saying, forgive them. they're, They're killing God. And he's saying, forgive them. We have people doing pornography, and we're like, judge them. Kill them. Earthquake them. Hurricane them. Tornado them. And the fact that it's an issue is an issue. The fact that this is a theological issue is an issue. And it, stri- it, it really, you know what, what, the, what really bothers me? Is when you start talking about giving mercy to people who don't deserve it, it creates all of this um, interaction about why people should be judged. And I, I don't understand. I put on my Facebook every once in a while just to stir people up. I just put, you know, the other day I put, um, boy, the, doom, the doomsday prophets come out whenever, this is the day after the, Japan, the earthquake in Japan. I said, well, I said, by tomorrow, the doomsday prophets will be out telling us why God's judging nations. And, and then I had, uh, of course, a lot of good stuff. But then I had a lot of, well, of course, God can't, you know, he can't look on sin. Da, 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 da. I'm like, dude, if you couldn't look on sin, he wouldn't look at you. You have forgotten where you came from. I, don't, I just don't even get why you would argue. Listen, the fact that someone would argue the theology. Someone would even take the time to try to figure out, well, there's got to be a scripture where we can make that bad. The fact that people would take the time to try to find a scripture that would make that, that earthquake against somebody and make it God. No, let me start over. That, that someone would take the time to make that earthquake the voice of God is troubling to me. To say to, you know, I don't know how many people they've figured lost their lives already in the Japanese earthquake, 20,000 or something, and all the damage is done. I mean, to, to actually say, yeah, and God did that. And if you want to know the love of God, you need to come here. Okay, we're just trying to tell you we love you. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. How are you feeling? You feeling repentant now? 
And I'll tell you what, if that one isn't enough, there's another one coming to California. Okay? Just, just so you know, God loves you. Because of all the sin, you know, you guys are aborting children. And so God wants to tell you how much he hates you killing children. He's going to kill a bunch of people to make his point for you there. Okay? Just so you know, you feel the love, you feel it. Yeah, it, it, it amazes me that we have to explain this. This is a huge issue that we have to explain this to people. And so, but here we go, explaining it. <laughs> Turn to John 8. We're going to do this for half an hour. <laughs> you can tell it frustrates the heck out of me. John 8. Verse 3, are you there? Oh, let's go verse 1. Early in the morning, he, speaking of Jesus, again, went into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And he said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone this woman. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stood, uh, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote, but it must have been profound. I think it was maybe the names of the girlfriends, the mistresses of the Pharisees. It's just a thought. Then I noticed whatever he wrote must have been uh, pretty powerful. And when he heard it, he began to, and, and went, I'm sorry, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Yeah. And when they heard it, they began to go out. When, oh, I missed something. Oh, verse 6. And they were testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But they were persisting in asking him. And he straightened up and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote some more names. I wrote some more on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one. The oldest ones first, and he was left alone with the woman. And he said, uh, in the middle of the court, straightened up. Jesus said to her, "Woman, where are they? Did they know, does no one condemn you?" She said, "No, Lord." He said, "Neither do I condemn you." From now on, said no more. Now, um, I understand this is a very interesting passage because do you do you realize that the reason why they're testing Jesus is because Jesus keeps saying, "I am." I am is the guy who wrote the law of Moses. He's the guy who met Moses in the burning bush. He's the guy who gave Moses the law, wrote the commandments on stone. That actually would be the person of Jesus, not the Father. Are you following me? So Jesus keeps saying, I am. And then when they say who, and he's like, I am that I am, that was the statement that Moses, that God made to Moses when he met God at the burning bush. Are you with me? So they bring the woman caught in adultery because what are they testing him for? They're not testing him to see if if he'll he'll give mercy. They're testing him because they know if he says, don't stone the woman, then they have a case against him because he's saying, remember, they're still living in the old covenant. Jesus hadn't died yet. So, they're, they're saying, wait a second, you said that you wrote 
Listen, you're saying that you're the I am. You wrote the commandments. And he says, here's what the commandment says. In other words, this is what you said you wrote. What are you going to do with this lady? Incredible wisdom. Jesus said, oh, I think we ought to stone her. And he that has no sin, get us started. In other words, if Jesus says, don't stone her, then, then, then they say, well, wait a second. I thought you, wrote, I thought you were the author. If Jesus says stone her, then... then he is sharing the opposite message that he's been preaching for three years. So do you understand that this is an incredible test? And Jesus goes, listen, um, why don't you just, why don't we stone her, but let's let the person who doesn't have sin get us started. That's the Lord's attitude Towards sinners. And by the way, where was the guy? Why is it always the woman? I mean, I think committing adultery takes two. It's just a little biological question. If you're gonna if you're gonna call for judgment, you better make sure that. You're living in a glass house and none of the windows have anything, any boogers on them. (laughs) Because James makes it really clear. It's like judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. That's pretty clear. Why are we doing this? This is insanity that we're talking like this. That, That we have to explain to people, don't. Blame God for earthquakes. He's not trying to kill people. As a matter of fact, he's trying to save people. We learned this in kindergarten, but children's church, but for some reason the adults haven't got it yet. Okay, so why do people do this? Why, um, why, why do people call for judgment? Well, some of them assume that judgment, in fact, Bill made reference to it today, that somehow disaster equals Revival. So they think, well, if there's a big disaster, then people will run to God. Now, first of all, how many of you know somebody that has lost a child or a husband or father or loved one in an untimely way, got hit by a car, accident, whatever, and they actually, they actually hate God because of it? Yeah, I, I mean, probably if you think about it, we've all at least met someone who's like, they have, don't want anything to do with God because their little baby died. Because this happened. Because the disaster happened. And it actually pushed them away from God. Uh, um, if you turn to Numbers chapter uh, 16, I'm just going to give you a quick reference. This is where the sons of Korah rise up against Moses. Do you remember the story? And, and Aaron. And they're like, hey, we ought to be... Listen, why is Aaron the number two guy? We ought to be in charge here. And God and, uh, and uh, Moses says... Uh, Okay, God, what do I do? And God says, listen, go have them get some almond branches and uh, cut off some almond branches. Have Aaron cut off some almond branches. Have the sons of Korah cut off some almond branches and, and bring them and I forget what, lay them before the Lord or however they did it. And so they did that. And the next morning, Korah's almond branches, all the sons of Korah's almond branches were dead. And Aaron's almond branch had, had buds and had, uh, had uh, ripe almonds and had... Um, you know what I'm saying. Had three levels of life. I can't even remember what it was. But, yeah, flowers. Thank you, flowers. Awesome. 
There were flowers. <laughs> it was alive. And they continued to complain. And so God told Moses, stand back. And when Moses stood back, he said, stand back from the sons of Korah. An earthquake opened up and killed all the sons of Korah. And you're like, well, there it is right there. Yeah, that is. That's called the Old Covenant. Called the Old Covenant. Now, here's what's interesting. It, that, so that happened in Numbers 16, verse 32. The earth opened up. Uh, its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah and their possessions. Verse 41, this is 10 verses later, 9 verses later. But on the next day, all the congregations of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who caused this death of the Lord's people. So here's my point there, is that how many of you can see that disaster did not result in revival? It actually resulted in more grumbling. In the book of Revelation, chapter 16, it's talking about the judgment day. The judgment day. Do you understand? Not the great and glorious day of the Lord, but judgment day. And it talks about judgment day, and it says that all these plagues are poured out. And it says that they're poured out the fifth angel. It's verse 10 of chapter 16. It says the fifth angel poured out his bowl uh, on the beast, and the kingdom became dark. And it goes on like that, and it says this. Uh, became darkened and they gnawed their, their tongues with, because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. This, my point is this. Even on judgment day, when God pours out wrath on judgment day, people won't repent. In other words, disaster does not equal revival. Well, our churches were full on Y2K. Yeah, they were full for about three months. I don't know where those people went. I mean, you can drive people into the kingdom with fear, but you can't keep them there because there is no fear in love. And perfect love casts out fear. So you can guilt people into the kingdom, but you can't keep them there with guilt because as soon as they come into the kingdom, there's no guilt there. It's hard to sustain with fear what you created... Okay, well, that's a good word. The next reason, like, this is like, why, why should we not prophesy judgment? Proverbs 18, 21, pretty obvious. Life, death and life are in the power of the what? Death and life in the power of the tongue. Do you know why the devil hates prophecy? you know why there's false prophets? Well, maybe we should, maybe some of you are like, there is? In the last days, false prophets will arise. Well, in order for there to be false prophets, there has to be real ones. Jesus didn't say, in the last days, all the prophets will be false. Why does, why does the devil counterfeit prophets? You don't hear, in the last days, there'll be false evangelists. Right? I always pick on the prophets. I'm sick and tired of it myself. Why? How did God create the world? He spoke it into being. He said, let there be light. He began to separate the light from the darkness and he spoke it into existence. How did the world come into existence? With the spoken word of God. When we prophesy, we co-create with God. So what you say is kind of powerful. Life and death. 
Say this. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Um, I want to find this one verse here. This is really this is really cool. Turn to Second Kings chapter two. Are you bored or am I okay? Second Kings chapter two. Verse uh, 23. This is the story of... Let me make sure. It's, is it Elijah or Elisha? It's Elijah. So, um, verse 23. Then he, speaking of Elijah, went uh, up from there to Bethel. As he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. <laughs> and he, speaking of Elijah, looked behind him and saw them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two female bearers came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. That's PMS, dude. You got post-ministry syndrome right there, I'm telling you. I mean, you don't have patience with a couple of kids. What's... How many of you understand that he cursed him in the name of the Lord? And 42 kids, two kids teased him, 42 kids paid for it. Why? Because the prophet was in a bad mood. Used his authority against people. How many of you understand that if you have authority, God has given you authority. Let's just use it in the natural for a minute. How many of you understand that if you have authority in the natural, that you can, make, you can use it for good or use it for bad. Do you understand that if you have authority in the spirit world, in that realm, you can use it for good or you can use it for bad. It doesn't validate that it was the word of the Lord. It, was a, it validates that the Lord gave you authority and you used it however you wanted to use it, but someday you'll stand before God and tell Him why you killed 42 children because you were in a bad mood. So the, the, the challenge I have, one of the challenges I have is that some of the prophets who are proclaiming earthquakes have lots of authority. And how many understand that there are levels of authority in the kingdom? So, you know, a new believer you know, stands over San Francisco and prophesies an earthquake. You know, I don't like that, but it doesn't bother me. Because I'm thinking, you know what? You don't have the power to stop a headache, so, you know. (laughs) But when fathers and mothers who have great authority, like Elijah, start prophesying earthquakes, what bothers me is, is that Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So then you create an earthquake and then blame God for it. And then it validates that you were right. It's really important for us to realize that like the natural world, you can make things happen in the spirit world that was never God's will. A great example is when um, Saul is totally demonized and God won't speak to him anymore. And he goes to the witch at Endor. Do you remember that? And he, and he disguised himself because he, you know, he'd, earlier he'd said, listen, he eradicated 
the, he eradicated Israel from witches and warlocks and all, all of witchcraft. And so, and he said, you know, anybody who does witchcraft in Israel will die. That's when he was in a good place. So now he needs to hear from the spirit world and God won't speak to him. So he basically goes to a psychic. And what does he say? He tells the witch, bring up Saul for me. I'm sorry, Samuel for me. The prophet Samuel. And, you know, this is a longer dialogue, but she does. And it says that Samuel came up from the dead. Now, how many of you understand that talking to the dead was actually against the Mosaic law and was punished by stoning? So Saul comes up from the ground and goes, why did you wake me? And he says, well, I mean, Samuel comes up from the ground. Saul and Samuel says, why did you wake me? He says, because God won't speak to me anymore. And, you know, basically Samuel says to him, listen, the kingdom has been given, taken from you and given to another. But the point is this. It was, some people say it was a demon who came up from the ground and looked like Samuel. Well, you can believe that, but the Bible says it was Samuel. So my guess is it was Samuel. See, the reason why people want to make it a demon is because they don't understand that you can make things happen in the spirit realm that God doesn't want to happen. But when God gave you authority, He entrusted you with the ability to do not what He wants done, but what you want done. And thank God He doesn't answer all of our prayers because most of us would be dead. You didn't get that part, but think through it. You'll get home like, oh, I know what he's saying. So the point is, is that because you can cause some disaster, doesn't make you, doesn't mean it was the will of God. It means you have a lot of authority. It doesn't mean you're right. So I'm really concerned when powerful people that I deeply respect prophesy things that are deeply destructive. And I feel like those are the kind of words that we need intercession for. We need to step in between and go, Hey God, uh, our brother's got, he's having a bad week or something. Or he doesn't like California or doesn't like the Japanese. I mean, something's going on here, but whatever it is, don't listen to him. Don't let the angels listen to him. Don't let creation listen to him. Or her, or whatever. Okay. Um, a couple more, and uh, let's see, which one should I give you? All of them. <laughs> well, it takes too long. How about, let's turn to First John. I think I may have done this one last time, but it's one of my favorites, actually. Okay, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Is everybody there? Beloved. Everybody say beloved. beloved. Do not believe. Everybody say do not believe. believe. Every spirit. Say every spirit. every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many, what? False prophets have gone out into the world. What's he trying to say to us? He's trying to say, listen, beloved. That would be us. He's not talking about the world. Okay, this was not written to the world. This is written to specifically... There are passages in the Bible that are actually written to the world. You understand? Their audience is the world. The audience here is specifically the beloved. And he says, Beloved, don't become a false prophet by listening to the wrong spirit. 
That means it's possible. Selah. Means think about it. Okay. Now, he says, but test the spirits. Now, if you read verse 1, you're, you know, first century Christian, and you get this letter from John. He says, beloved, uh, uh, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. What's, your, what's the first question that pops in your mind? How? I'm like, okay, I don't want to become a false prophet. Wow, that's kind of scary. Here's John, my apostolic father, is writing me a letter, and he's saying, like, this, you know, you understand that first century, this was personal. Like, this is written to some folks. And he's saying, listen, I'm concerned about you. You don't listen to the wrong spirit because you could end up becoming a false prophet. So this was first personal to a people before it was ever corporate. You understand? And so, and he says, listen, I want, you have to test the spirits to make sure you don't become a false prophet. Don't just listen to anything you hear up here. So, so the next question is, how? How do I make sure, man, I don't want that to happen to me. How do I make sure I'm, I'm hearing the right spirit? And so he, now, the whole chapter 4, actually there wasn't chapters when he wrote it, of course. But whole, the, 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 the whole subject of chapter 4 is judging spirits. Are you following me? So, um, watch this. By this you'll know the Spirit of God... Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, I'm sorry, every uh, spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you've heard is coming, and he's now already in the world. How many understand Antichrist is already in the world? Okay. So, the first, ju- the first um, if you will, what do you call it, like screen? Filter. The, the largest filter is this. If the Spirit doesn't acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you got that mean, died on the cross, redeemed us, okay, that Spirit is not from God. Now, he's not just talking about spirits, invisible spirits, he's talking about the spirits that speak through people. Okay, so that would eliminate, you know, let's say Buddhism, false religions, are you following me? So he screens those out first. He's like, okay, they don't even believe in the cross. Okay? Whatever they prophesy, not good. Okay, and then he goes on. Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you've overcome them. Who's he talking about? You've overcome who? Not false prophets, the Antichrist spirit. Are you with me? Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God, what? Listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this you will know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What's the next, what is the, what, what is the next filter? The next filter is that false prophets don't listen to anybody. No one can talk to them. No one can correct them. No one can direct them. When you stop being teachable, correctable, flexible, you're listening to the wrong spirit. And listen, I want to tell you, my, this is my experience. And I've dealt with five people that in, at Bethel that I would say were absolutely false prophets. Now, I mean, there's a difference between listening to that spirit and actually becoming a false prophet. To me, that's, it's a process. I don't think you listen to the wrong spirit the first day and you're like, I'm a false prophet. I think it's something that grows in you, if you will. But one of the things I've noticed with all five of them, all five of these false prophets, actually three of them were women, that I dealt with was this. 
is nobody could correct them. As a matter of fact, they create this cycle, this ecosystem, that when you correct them, it actually validates that they're a prophet. Because the Old Testament prophets were all persecuted. So when you tell them their prophecy's bad, they're like, wow, they persecuted the prophets of old, and ah, and they wear it as a badge of honor. So it's, they create this ecosystem inside of them where the more you try to redirect them or correct them, the more, the more it validates that their word is right. And here he says, listen, th- listen, how do you know the difference between truth and error? Listen, they don't listen to it. You listen to us because you're from God. They don't listen to us because they're not from God. Whenever you get in this place, now, now we're talking about you, that you cannot be corrected. Be careful. That is the spirit of anti-Christ. Now, I didn't say that you liked being corrected. If you like being corrected, that's a sadistic spirit. <laughs> Beat me. Crucify me. Dude, when Jesus was crucified, he said, hey, there's another way to do this. Take this cup from me. This is a good idea up there. Not so good of an idea down here. There's a lot of people like, kill me, crucify me. I'm like, dude, you got the wrong Jesus. Says Jesus endured the cross. He didn't enjoy it. (laughs) Okay. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Love us from God. And everyone that loveth is born of God. And know God. I started too high. Do you understand that this verse is about false prophets? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. What's he doing? He's giving you the third filter for false prophets. And the third filter for the Antichrist spirit that's speaking to you. When you've lost sight of love, you're listening to the wrong spirit. He's still talking about testing the spirits. When the word of the Lord that you... Wait. When the word that you're hearing from the spirit realm doesn't embrace the love of God, and you can read 1 Corinthians 13 to talk to see what he's talking about. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Hollow. If you're going to say you need to be judged... This earthquake has to happen because of such and such. It's like, wait a second. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Wrong spirit. Are you with me so far? Okay. Verse 9. By this the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. What's He saying? Listen, nobody's actually seen God. But if you see someone love, you've seen God. When you see somebody love, you have experienced God. No one's ever seen God at any time. But, listen, what's it say? No one's ever seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. What's he saying? No one's actually ever visually seen God. But, if you love someone, then you have experienced the abiding presence of God. Because it's God loving through you. Okay, verse 13 
By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He's given us His Spirit. We have seen testify that the Father has sent the Son to be what? The Savior of the church. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of Christians. No. To be the Savior of what? The world. The Lord's trying to save the world. Okay? Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and we have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in God abides, uh, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in Him. Verse 17. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the what? Day of what? Did you notice that it says a day? It's always called judgment day. Look what it says. By this love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear, get this part, involves punishment. Now, do you realize that the con... Listen, that's a powerful verse. But do you realize that the verse is in the context of testing the spirits so that you don't become a false prophet? The the context is prophecy. Do you understand? The subject is prophecy. He's writing about prophecy. And he's saying, listen, test the spirits. And of course, the people that John wrote to is like, how do we test them? And he gives them five tests. And the last one is this. If you hear prophecies that require punishment, then you are listening to the wrong spirit because perfect love actually casts out spirit, doesn't invite it. You go, well, how about the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, the, the, the fear of the Lord that Proverbs is talking about is the fear that causes you to respect God, therefore admire God, and therefore want to be close to God. It would be, you know, real simply, it'd be like, you ever seen a really, really, you ever met a really, really famous person, and you're like, oh, it'd be so amazing to get to know them? I mean, you know, I understand that's a little bit weird, but it's true though, right? It's true. It's like, oh, I love to be a fan. It's like, the fear of the Lord is like that. The fear of the Lord is like, he's so amazing, I'd love to be his friend. The fear of the Lord is like, he's about to kill me? That's not the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of punishment. And so, in the context, in the context of prophecy, when your prophecies create fear and terror, you're listening to the wrong spirit. Now, let me be clear, just because I've referenced a couple of prophecies and they're all over the internet, and you know, I've gotten seven letters yesterday alone saying, you know, should we talk about these people? And it's like, listen, I'm not saying these people are false prophets. So I, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that, that some of the prophecies that we've been hearing, I'm not saying that they are false prophets because they're giving words of fear. I'm simply saying that when you begin to listen to, to the spirit realm and you begin to speak 
things that create fear, that's the wrong spirit. And I would propose that we've all listened to the wrong spirit. Now, I realize that if you make a lifestyle out of that, that eventually there's going to be some place where you cross over the line and you're no longer... In other words, you're not just giving bad words. Pretty soon it has to do with you. It becomes personal. I want to be clear. Like These prophetic words that I know of, the people I know that have given these... these many of them are my friends. Like I don't think they're false prophets. I just, I just think they're listening to the wrong spirit. So I don't want anybody walking out here and say, well, he said, you know, Joe Smith's a false prophet. I'm not saying that. I'm simply reading you what John said. And I'm saying these are the signs of false prophets. And the book is not written to false prophets. It's written to the church. And he's saying, be careful that you don't let these things creep up in your heart. And as soon as we point to someone and say, well, they're a false prophet, be careful because now... You make a judgment about someone's heart. You don't have a right to make a judgment about somebody else's heart. So I can judge the fruit of somebody's life and say, well, that fruit matches all this, this stuff right here. But I need to be careful that I... That I, 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 I want to be careful that I don't condemn someone that, that God hasn't condemned. It's amazing who, who we're going to find in heaven. I mean, that like Rahab made it. Yeah, that some of you. <laughs> and, and me too. So I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Where are we? What time is it? Oh my goodness. Uh, I have about 15. So I was just trying to give you a few. Um. Sometimes when we prophesy, oftentimes our prophecies are more revealing, are revealing our heart more than they're revealing God's heart. How do I tell if I'm like, hey, you know, do, do I ever get negative words? Yeah, I get them all the time. I don't know a prophetic person that doesn't get a negative word. What do I do about that? Well, the first thing I do is I call for mercy. If I get a negative word, I call for mercy. You know, when Abraham, God meets Abraham in Genesis 18, and God says to Abraham, you know, shall I hide from Abraham when I'm about to do, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. And he goes, and then he says to Abraham, listen, this is what I, I'm coming, I'm going down to Sodom to see if what I've heard is true, which is an amazing statement. Like, I thought you were omnipresent, all-knowing. And God goes, I'm going to go down to Sodom to see if what I heard is true. Which I, I'm not making a theology about it, it's just an interesting scripture. And, and then he begins to realize... Abraham begins to realize that God is planning on destroying Sodom. And who's in there? His, his cousin, Lot. And so Abraham does what any good Jewish businessman would do. And he begins to barter. 
with God. And he starts with 50. And you, he says, you know, if there's... And, and this is what Abraham says, which I think is a really interesting statement. He says, far be it from me that the judge of the earth would judge the wicked and the righteous together. In other words, he's saying this in plain English. Lot's there, and you know he's righteous. And that you would destroy Sodom with a righteous man in it is incongruent with your nature. He knew that before the cross. That's why he's called a friend of God. And so he begins to barter with God. He says, if there's 50, and you know the story, God says, yeah, you know, if there's 50, I'll, I'll save the place. And he goes, well, how about if the 50 are lacking five? I love, I love his bartering. He's like, well, how about, you wouldn't kill people over five, would you? God's all, no, 45 is fine. He gets God down to 10, I think. It, you know, too bad he didn't keep going. I'm sure he's thinking, well, there's got to be a few other people. I mean, lots of friends. And, um... And he gets God down to 10, and you know that God couldn't find 10. He could only find Lot and, and Lot's wife and, uh, and, their, and their kids. And so um, God tells um, Lot and his family to leave. And it says that Lot hesitated. And when Lot hesitated, the angels came and carried Lot and his family out. How many of you know that's the power of intercession? <laughs> I, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like intercession. When people are praying for you, they kind of override your will. <laughs> I don't know if that's theologically accurate, but when you're being carried out by the angels and you don't want to go. And, when they, and God said, listen, when you leave the city, don't look back. Okay, just keep going. And you all know what happened. Lot looks back. It's famous. Lot's wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. And uh, I had this revelation. This is many years ago, probably 12 years ago. Um, God asked me a question. He, he said, was Lot's wife righteous or wicked? I'm thinking she's wicked because I've been preaching that for years. And the Lord said, is Lot's wife righteous or wicked? I said, mm, thou knowest, Lord. <laughs> he said, what was her name? What was her name? Oh, man, I'm thinking, oh, man, I hope this isn't for a promotion. <laughs> I said, thou do not remember us. And the Lord says, well, what's, what was Abraham's wife's name? I said, oh, Sarah. He goes, that's right. So, so her identity was not an Abraham. I get it. Oh, I get it. Lot's wife was not named because her identity was in Lot. And then he said, was Lot righteous or wicked? Well, he didn't act very well, but actually the Bible says that his righteous soul was tormented every day. So I said, well, Lot was righteous. He said, well, when Lot's wife looked back, what did she turn into? I said, salt. He said, why didn't she, come, why didn't she turn into dust? Because David wrote, from dust you come and from dust you go. I said, I don't know. He said, because she was preserving that city. She didn't look back because she was wicked. She looked back because when I let go, she couldn't. And you are called what? Salt and light. You preserve cities. God does not destroy cities because, there's, because of the wicked. He destroys a city when he can't find enough righteous. Now, this is my opinion. Sometimes I think that, how does God find righteous people? 
How does God know if there's enough righteous? Well, sometimes I think he prophesies judgment and waits to see who will call for mercy. Like Abraham. See, I think sometimes when God prophesies, sometimes when God prophesies to us, he's not determining our destiny, he's testing our hearts. I wonder how many Father Abrahams God... See, God said to Abraham... In fact, I'll just say this. In uh, Romans 4.23, uh, it says, In hope against hope, speaking of Abraham, he believed so that he became the father of nations, and so shall his descendants be. In other words, here's the point. God wants us to father nations. How did God test Abraham to see if he could be a father of nations? He prophesied something bad and watched Abraham step in and ask for mercy. How did he find out if Moses could father a nation? In Exodus 32, he told Moses, listen, these, these people, these, these people are stiff-necked, they're wicked people, they're serving idols, I'm going to kill all of them, and I'm going to make a nation of you. And Moses said, listen, God, these are your people, who you are called by your name, who you made a promise to. And he has this conversation with God, and he says, if you kill these people, the Egyptians are going to say, you brought these people out to destroy them. God, you can't kill these people. And, it's, and how about your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you said that you bring them into the promised land? And it says this, and God changed his mind. What did God do? Told Moses, I'm going to destroy these people. What did Moses do? Moses called for mercy. What did God say? I got me a father. I got me a leader. I have somebody who thinks like me. What did he do with Abraham? Made him a father of nations. How did he do it? I'm going to destroy this place. Abraham's like, hey, God, that's not a good plan. God goes, I got me a leader. I got a friend. I got someone who thinks like me. This is on this side of the cross. This is before redemption. If you hear a judgment word in your spirit, call for mercy, you'll always be on the right side. You'll always be on the right side. In um, 1976, there was a woman in a church who had a vision of an earthquake. And she, and, and she saw the earthquake in a vision. And in the earthquake, she, over, I'm sorry, in the vision, superimposed over the earthquake was, I think, I may not get the date right, right but like April 4th on a calendar superimposed over the earthquake. She went to her pastor and said, I have this vision, da-da-da, this thing. And she says, I feel like this is a warning. The pastor went to the mayor of the city and said, listen, our, this is our prophetic gal. She's got lots of experience. We really trust her. She saw this thing happen. The mayor didn't listen. The pastor asked all of his... He was the pastor over several churches in Guatemala. And he ordered all of his people to sleep outdoors for the first week of whatever it was, April, I think. The earthquake happened on that date. And uh, 20, more than 20,000 people died. Not one person in his church died. And the mayor and the governor of that region turned over all the restoration to the pastor, gave him helicopters and 
sent, sent in hit the, uh, the, their, what their, what's equal to their National Guard and put it under his care. And he oversaw the restoration of Guatemala. Now, there's two points I'd like to make. First of all, there's a difference between warning and judgment. She never said it was God. It was like Agabus warned of a famine. He warned of a famine. Did you notice he didn't tie it to anyone's sin? He said, I see a famine coming. In other words, I see a natural disaster God wants to warn you from. Now, this woman saw a warning. She didn't relate it to the fact that God was mad or angry. She just said, I see this happening. How many understand that earthquakes, tornadoes, all that? Those are natural disasters. So judgment says, God did this because he wants to punish you. Warning says, I see this coming. We need to make sure that, we're, that we save the people. Yeah. Now, I think in our, my context would be, if that would have happened instead of 1976, if that would have happened in 2006, my, my idea would have been, let's pray that that doesn't happen. Let's, let's stand in the gap and let's pray for God to, inter- the God to intervene in an earthquake that he didn't cause. How many of you understand that God can step into your life and, do, and fix things that you caused? So, um, I think that's, uh, I think there's a, I, I think it's just important to know there's a difference between warning and judgment. Judgment is related to people's behavior. Warnings related to natural circumstances. I think warnings should be taken to intercessors so that we can pray that these things don't come about. Are you with me? And I, I think that we avert, I don't mean we Bethel, I think we avert disasters all the time. When we see, when you have a warning, when you have, and I can tell you like, if, if we wanted to do negative prophecy, I could do them every month. I have disaster dreams. I wake up in cold sweats, Kathy can tell you, I'm not sure how often. Sometimes they go several times a month and sometimes they'll go months without one. And I wake up and I say, man, I had the worst dream and we pray. And we pray until the burden lifts. And, what, and this is what I do. This is just learning. I pray until the burden lifts. And if the burden won't lift, I call Benny and the intercessors. And I say, listen, I've been praying for three days. This thing still feels very real. Sometimes the dream will keep reoccurring. And I'll say, I really feel like we need to get more people behind us. We need to get some powerful people with authority behind us and pray and we'll just be interacting sometimes for three or four weeks until that, that burden. I don't know if you understand what I mean by burden. It's hard to explain if you haven't had it before. But I'll just be in my spirit like, that thing's broken. I can feel it lifted. But one thing I don't do, mostly, I don't, I don't come and tell the whole congregation. And the reason I don't, to be honest, is, is because there are young congregants, there are young people in our congregation, I'm talking about young at in age, I mean young in the Lord, that instead of it creating a place to pray, it creates anxiety and fear because they don't know the heart of the Lord. So I have a group of intercessors. There's about 20 or 30 of them that we share these kind of words with. They come several times a year and, and we, just, we, we just pray until that thing is broken. So it's not that prophetic people don't get negative stuff. The question is, what do you do with it when you get it? I think it's really simple. If God is giving you the negative stuff, 
then he's warning you about the enemy's attempts against your life because the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. If the enemy's giving you, feeding you some of his plan, how many of you understand that he has no authority? And if he's feeding you his plan, he's trying to get, he's trying to use your authority to make it happen. Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And then in Ephesians 2, he gave it to you. So the devil has no authority. So how does he get things done? In fact, Revelation says that the accuser accuses you before God day and night. The devil doesn't have access to God. So how does the accuser accuse you? Through your brothers? Are you with me? So in both cases, if you get a if you get a bad inf- I mean if you get a negative word from the devil, you know what to do. Don't speak it. He's trying to use you. If you get it from God, what's God's heart? Mercy. He didn't die on the cross for judgment. He died for mercy. If he did if he wanted judgment, he wouldn't have died on the cross. You get this pretty simple really. Like, like, if God wanted to judge the world, He wouldn't have had Jesus. If He wanted to create earthquakes and tornadoes, and I mean, if that was His idea, it's like, hey, let's just torment people until they go to hell. No, the idea is contrast. God's trying to show you He loves you. And I know that I love you this much with an earthquake maybe feels real for some of you, but it isn't. Okay, you've heard me for a long time tonight. Would you stand, please? I know, we're only one-third away through my notes. How many of you in this room, when you get to Judgment Day, you are hoping you get mercy? How many of you? How many of you, when you get to Judgment Day, you're like, I just hope God judges me by my works and my attitude? How many of you want that? I'm just trying to see if we're all on the same page here. So how many of you understand that in order to get mercy, you have to give mercy? And it's really the story of Matthew 18, where the guy was forgiven a million dollars, and he wouldn't forgive his friend 10,000 or whatever it was. How many of you understand? Simple parable. The idea is you've been forgiven a lot, and what is your job? To forgive. We get it on a personal level. We go, yeah, we got to forgive. But how many you understand that it involves corporate levels too? That there's corporate levels of forgiveness that we can actually forgive nations. Okay? You with me? Okay. So I want you to put your hand on your heart. See? Those, those judgment words are making the babies cry. Put your hand on your heart and just say this. Say, God, give me a heart of mercy and compassion. Teach me how to forgive people who don't deserve it. And Lord, help me to learn to forgive myself, even though I don't deserve it, so that I can live happily ever after, because that's what you purchased on the cross. I receive that for myself. I receive it for my friends. I receive it for your enemies. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Paul said we have a judgment tunnel. No, an anti-judgment tunnel. We always talk about love tunnel, whatever the theme is, but that doesn't sound right, judgment tunnel. A justice tunnel. Justice is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything tunnel. All things good tunnel. There we go, all things good. Let's have our teams come on up for an all things good tunnel. Let's have our ministry team come on up, our students, our prayer teams. Let's get an all things good tunnel going here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you want to go through the all things good tunnel, go ahead and get in the center aisle here. We're going to turn this thing on in just a moment, but let's have our teams come down. If you're going to go through the tunnel here, just get right in the middle. If you don't know what the tunnel is, don't worry about it. Just get in the center aisle and follow the person in front of you. All right, get all of our ministry teams up here. We need a couple more on this side. We're going to have a couple of you guys on the end. You guys can come over here. Yeah, just a couple of you. That would help. In some, some way, if we can make two lines in the center, two lines in the all things good tunnel. As soon as the music starts, the guys in the back, are we ready for some music? As soon as the music starts, go ahead and start coming down the center through the All Things Good Tunnel. In just a couple minutes, we're going to have a healing team right over here on the left. If you need healing in your body tonight, we're going to be over in just a couple minutes. If you want to go over there and wait, come through the line and head right over to that uh, far right corner.
Yeah, if you need healing in your body, go ahead and head over to the far right corner over here. We've got a few of our team over there, and they'll spend some time praying with you. If we have some extra hand, if we, we do need all the chairs stacked in the whole room in stacks of seven. So if you're just hanging out and you want to help us, we need all the chairs stacked in stacks of sevens. 